It's a privilege to be back here, actually. I've been here a few times before now, but this has always had a special, this church has always had a special place in my heart. I think because um, just the freshness of, you know, your walks with the Lord, your desire to seek the Lord, and, and I think, you know, probably a lot can be learned from just people who want to be real. And I don't know many of you, I, I don't recognize you, some of you probably I've met and you're saying, you don't remember me, like what's up with that? And I'm sorry about that. I just turned 50 and that seems so old even to me and I'm going to blame it on age. So uh, my son told me I don't look a day over 49 and a half, so I'm, I'm holding to that. Anyway, um, good evening. It's a privilege to be here this evening and I was um, talking to someone today, and they mentioned something that's been just, they struck my heart and it stuck with me all day. So I'm not going to share what I shared this morning. God has really prepared us for something, and what is that? What is the future? So I've been thinking about that all day, and um, what's come to mind I want to share with you tonight, it's from Esther chapter 4. So if you would turn to the book of Esther, and we're going to go to chapter 4. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, um, page 473 in my Bible, if that helps you at all. I doubt it does. Esther chapter 4. It's always a privilege to come, as I said, and to share with you, and um, hopefully I can be an encouragement this evening. I work with a ministry called Gospel for Asia, by the way. Uh, We have about 16,500 native or national missionaries, pastors and missionaries who are preaching the gospel in places, 10 countries in Asia, India being the largest. Many of our missionaries go into places that are so unreached that literally they go into a village or a town. They meet the first person on the street. They say, sir, do you know Jesus Christ? And the person thinks for a while and says something like, sir, I know everybody in this village. I was born here, raised here. I've never been outside my village. Nobody by that name lives here. Maybe try the next village. Maybe your friend Jesus is living there. They have no idea he even exists. And so our heart really is a ministry. The one thing we do, the one passion we have is to go into these villages to preach the gospel, not me, but native missionaries who we get to help, about 16,000 of them, as I said, and they plant churches in these areas and then train people up in the way that they should go according to the scripture. So I come out of the Dallas, Texas office, actually. We have a staff there of about 100 families. Um, Like me, we raised our support. We came from all over the country. Some of us, few of us from Canada. Um, I came actually from California, uh, San Luis Obispo area. My wife and I went to GFA about 19 years ago. Uh, We sold our accounting practice there and raised our support and took off to Texas. And um, some people think God lives in Texas. I'm not sure. Um, It's the buckle of the Bible belt. That's what they told me when I got there. So anyway, Esther chapter 4, before we read. Can we pray and commit the time to the Lord? Father, thank you very much for this time tonight. Please help me, Lord, to be an encouragement. But more than that, even if I'm not an encouragement, please, Lord, help me to share what you have on your heart. And, Lord, to share it in the way that you would want it shared. We love you and we praise you. I ask you, bless my brothers and sisters. You give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say to the church in Jesus' name. Amen. To give just a little background, because we're not, not going to get to read the whole chapter of Esther, but just to give a little bit of background, Esther's parents die when she's really young. Mordecai is her cousin, and he kind of raises her. 
Now, at that time, King Artaxerxes is king of the known world. He's a Persian king, and he's king of the known world at that time. King Artaxerxes has a fight with his wife. She won't come out when he asks her to. She's a little rebellious, and so he gives her the right foot of fellowship and, and boots her out of the kingdom. And then, as a man will do about sometime later, he sits around lonely, whining because his wife is gone. Like, who's going to wash my socks? I don't know what he was thinking exactly, but so he wants to get another wife. And he did what probably most men would love to have the chance to do. He decides he'll hold a beauty contest and he'll just choose the prettiest one. And so he does that. He holds this beauty contest. And one of the entrants, if you will, in, the, in this beauty contest is this young lady, Esther. She's a, a beautiful Jewish young lady. And so during this um, time, she is actually selected and she gets to be queen. And so literally, I mean, it's a, it's a real life. Like this really happened. It's, an, it's a historical event. It's not a story like we would tell a, a fairy tale. It's a real life event. And so literally she goes from like a rags to riches existence, like Cinderella, but, but it's real. It really happened. And so now she's living in the palace and all the, the, the beauty of the palace and all the wealth of the palace and kind of in a world of her own. Mordecai, her cousin who raised her, meanwhile, is... Um, in the same city, but he is, um, you know, not enjoying all the things that Esther is. In fact, um, Mordecai, Esther's cousin, offended the king's right-hand man. You remember him? His name is Haman. And Haman wanted all the Jews to bow when he came by, and Mordecai just said, I won't bow to anybody but God. And Haman became so incensed that he he sends out a decree, an order throughout the whole known world that they're going to ethnically cleanse all the Jews. They're going to wipe them out. This decree said, men, women, children, we're going to just, we're going to smash them all. We're going to kill them all. And he sets a certain day when this is going to happen. And I imagine if we were Jews living on the earth at that time, that would be a pretty intense thing. It was for Mordecai, because Mordecai actually goes to the gate of the palace, inside the gate, and inside the palace is where his, his cousin is. He goes to the gate of the palace. He, he has sackcloth on instead of his normal clothes. You know, sackcloth, ashes. He's weeping and wailing and mourning at the gate, just unable to contain himself. One of Esther's attendants sees Mordecai out there and tells Esther, Hey, I think your cousin is out at the gate. And he's making quite a scene. I mean, he's weeping and wailing. He's he's dressed in a gunny sack and he's got dirt in his hair. He's out there just wailing for some reason. And Esther really gives kind of a lame response. She sends him some new clothes and a message. Oh, please, don't worry. Be happy. Change your clothes. Kind of retail therapy. You know, here you go. What's wrong? When the going gets tough, the tough go shopping. Come on, cheer up. She doesn't realize what Mordecai knows. She has no idea what's impending, what the doom is to her people. Mordecai basically sends back a message and says, no, I don't want the clothes. You can take them back. But you need to tell Queen Esther, that she needs to go to the king and that she needs to take a message to him that the Jews are going to be ethnically cleansed and she needs to kind of stick her neck out in a sense and help her people. To which Esther replies through another messenger, oh, tell him I can't do that. I can't do that because you don't just walk into the presence of the king. He has to summon you and I've not been summoned. And if I just walk into the presence of the king like that, he could take my head off. I can't do it. So Mordecai sends back his final message, and that's where we pick up. Esther chapter 4, 
We'll pick up in verse 13. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You know, brothers and sisters, I think that we are the Queen Esther in this story. The church of Jesus Christ living on planet earth at this time, at this very hour of history. I think we're the Queen Esther of this story. Kind of in a sense living in a palace, not realizing that half the world has no idea who Jesus Christ even is. Do you know, in fact, every single day in our world, there are 500 of our Christian brothers and sisters who are martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. That's hard to believe. But it's true. There's a war going on, and and sometimes it's just so easy for us because, I mean, even in, in recession, and I know things are tough for some of us, and I know things are tough in this country, tougher than they have been, but please understand, I just did some research on this recently. Do you know, in this country, the, the average person who lives at the poverty line lives on $30 a day? Okay, that's the poverty line in our country. Do you know that 80% of the world lives on less than $10 a day? Do you know that one half of the world lives on $2.50 or less a day? What I'm trying to say is, we think things are bad, but that's just relative. We are still the most blessed, the richest people on the face of the planet by far. And, and why is that? Why are we in the palace when so many of our brothers and sisters are not? And I think the reason is we have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So in my thinking, no matter what our course of study is, if you're in school or what our profession is, if you're out in the work world, no matter what we're doing here, really, we're here. If you're a believer here tonight, we're here for one purpose, one purpose, and that is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to two plus billion people living on this planet who have never had a chance to hear his name. That's the future of Regen. And every church, I believe, that is naming the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord. That's our call. That's the future. That's our marching order. That's the way we should go from here. We were raised up for such a time as this. I mean, this isn't new, right? This is just biblical. It's Acts chapter 1. It's Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20. It's Jesus in His final words saying, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and lo, I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age. And then in Acts chapter 1, the disciples are all gathered around. They're going, hey, when's the kingdom going to come? And and what's the time on all this? And he said, don't even worry about it. You go into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. It was almost just a repeat of what he'd already told us. Those were the final commands that he gave to us. And I think that that's exactly what he expects us to be doing. See, we're not made for the palace. We're made for heaven. We're not made for the USA or wherever you're from, wherever you were born, whatever your home country is. You were not made for that place if you're a Christian. I'm not an American first. I'm a Christian first. That means that I I walk by the rules and the laws of my Lord first. 
And honestly, it sets me free in so many ways. I don't get so troubled over who's in the White House or who's not in the White House or what's going on or what's not going on or if things are going the way I believe they should or if they're not because I'm an ambassador from another kingdom to this one. And I'm here simply as a messenger of Jesus Christ, no matter what I am in my profession, an accountant or a plumber or whatever I am, a student, that's what I'm here for. 500,000 villages in India waiting for their first opportunity to hear about Jesus Christ. It's, they're just they're desperate people there. And in fact, I think probably none of the, the groups of people I know are more desperate than a group of people called the Dalits. The Dalits are the lowest class or caste of people on the Hindu caste ladder. There's a, a caste or a class structure, and it goes down at the very bottom rung of this class ladder are the Dalits. The word Dalit actually means crushed. The Dalits plus another group with them called the OBC, that means other backward caste, number about 700 million people. That's about one out of every eight people living on planet Earth. And these people are called untouchables. Untouchable means that if they were crossing the street out here, uh, 15th Street or 3rd Street or whatever street is out here, if they were crossing, they were hit by a car, if you were of a higher caste, you would not go out into the road and drag them to safety and try to help them because to touch them would defile you if you were of a higher caste. They are untouchable. What you do is you just let their karma take care of stuff. Like, that's, that's their problem. It happened to them. And if you mess with them, that's, that's the way it's got to be. That's just the gods judging them. Untouchable. Well, they've been slaves like this for about 3,000 years. November 4, 2001, they came out publicly and they said, we hate and, and will not be part of the, this Hinduism anymore. We'll become Christians or Buddhists or Muslims, but we won't be Hindu slaves anymore. We're sick of this. And they had this big kind of coming out in celebration thing in, in Delhi, India, where supposedly a million were going to gather. I don't think they quite got there. A million people. And what they were crying out for was just to change. You have to realize, I mean, every single hour of the day, two Dalits are assaulted. Three Dalit women are raped. Two Dalits are murdered. Two Dalit dwellings are burned. These people are just, they're spit on by society. Two-thirds of their, them are uh, totally illiterate. Many of them are denied entrance into a school. 57% of their children are malnourished. They're destitute. They're enslaved. In fact, one story that I read, a little Dalit boy went into a movie theater to watch a movie. He spread out his feet. He accidentally touched the feet of the little boy in front of him, who happened to be a higher caste Hindu boy. The boy turns around, finds out that he's been touched or defiled by a Dalit. He becomes enraged. About a week later, with five of his friends, he finds this little Dalit boy. He murders him. He murders six members of his family. They cut up the bodies. They put them in gunny sacks. They throw the gunny sack in a river in broad daylight, and they're not even prosecuted by the police. Because after all, the people they killed were only Dalits. They don't count. November 4, 2001, they came out en masse and they said, we don't want to be Dalits or slaves like this anymore. We want to know freedom. K.P. Yohanan, who's the president and founder of Gospel for Asia, he's my boss. He and some other Christian leaders went to these people and said, listen, only Jesus Christ can make you free indeed. We want to come among your people and we want to tell you about Jesus Christ and plant churches among you. At that time, the response that he got was, you know, we've heard of Jesus, some of us, but 
We want to be free, but we don't want churches. We want schools. Our children can't read. They can't write. They can't get along in this life. And they'll be no better off when they grow up than we are. Could you please school our children? We said, you know, we don't really do schools. We do churches. So how about we come and plant churches? And they said, how about you come and plant schools? And we said, well, how about churches? And they said, schools. And we said, churches. He said, one day, he said, a man came up to him. He said, he was the head of the Banjara tribe, 60 million people in this tribe. And he was weeping his eyes out. He stood in front of me and said, sir, would you please teach our children? Would you please school them, educate them? Teach them anything you want. Teach them about your Jesus. Teach them your Bible. But he said, just teach them. Around that same time, KP has a dream. KP's not a spooky guy. He's not a dreamer or somebody who sees visions or whatever. He just, you know, normal Christian guy. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. But this particular night, he had a dream. And the dream he had was about a million-acre wheat field. And he could see it off in the distance. The wheat was ripe. It was, was ready for harvest. And instinctively, in his dream, he knows that this is the end-time harvest that he's been living his whole life for. He gets so excited, he begins running toward this wheat field in his dream, jumping up and down, screaming, Lord, we've got it made. We've got it made. He's stopped by a huge river that separates him from this wheat field. And he said, the river is flowing so swift, he knows it's so deep that if he steps in, he'll be swept away. He can't get across the river. He sinks down on his knees in his dream. He begins crying and praying, saying, Lord, please make a way to get to the wheat field. The, the harvest will be destroyed. Please make a way. And as he's praying there in his dream, he said, a bridge appears and it spans the river from one side to the other side where he's praying. And on this bridge are just hundreds and hundreds, thousands of little children going back and forth. He wakes up from his dream. He sits up on his bed. He said, Lord, I have no idea what that's all about. Was that from you or was that just bad pizza, something I ate? I mean, what was that? Is there any significance to this? He said, I just spent the next few minutes praying. And he said, as I did that, I just really sensed that the Lord was speaking to me, saying, son, the harvest that you see is the harvest. But the way to get to the harvest is through the children. You get the children, you get the harvest. He gets so excited that he cuts his trip short in India. He he races back to the United States. He calls a bunch of us together for a Saturday meeting, (coughs) explaining to us that, You know, right now we have the opportunity to grab some of these Dalit children and begin to school them. We can grab 19,000 children immediately. We can set up 370 schools. And he tells us about his dream, and he's so excited about this whole thing. And and we're sitting there, you know, obviously not looking the way he wanted us to look on our faces. For me, I wasn't for this whole idea. I thought it was crazy. I thought it was crazy because I thought, you know, we have 16,000 missionaries that we're trying to help on the mission field. And I mean, this is not my job. This is my life. Like this is day and night and, and it's very inconvenient. And it's been the best time of my life serving the Lord at GFA for the last 19 years. But it's definitely been the hardest. I, the only thing I can compare it to is tax season for a CPA. It's like tax season all the time. Like it's just long days and short nights and just, you just keep grinding and you keep going. And it seems like you're never done. And the pressure is always on. And I'm thinking, so now we're going to take like 19,000 children along with 16,000 missionaries. And I'm just thinking, man, there's just, there's no way we can do this. And KP, as he's looking around the room, looking at our faces, he goes, wow. He goes, you know, I don't think you're very excited about this. He goes, look, if, if you don't want to do it, we won't do it. He said, we can just drop the whole thing. But he said, let me just ask you one more question, then, then I'll just let it rest. 
He said, would your opinion of this change if your child were a Dalit child? For me, my mind went back immediately to 1994. That was the first trip I made to India. When I went there in 1994, I spent uh, almost a month in India, and I was leaving the country. I was in Bombay. And while I was in Bombay, I was at the home of one of the pastors who we were supporting at the time. And this man had a a really neat ministry where he went into the Bombay slums. The Bombay slums are, are the world's largest slum. Some five million people live in this slum. They're born there. They're raised there. They die there. They don't know anything but the slum. In the Bombay slum, in fact, if you're a young man, it is said that you're lucky if you inherit the piece of sidewalk that your father slept on before he died. If that happens, you're a rich young man in the Bombay slum. And he had this ministry where he would go into the slums and he would preach the gospel and people would come to know Christ and he would take them out. He would teach them to read. Then he would teach them the Bible and then he would send them back into the slums to reach his own people for Christ. And he put two big photo albums on my lap, just page after page of pictures of you know, missionaries in the, in the slums preaching the gospel and baptizing people in sewer water and mud puddles and praying for the sick and little churches that were just made out of like black tarp, you know, on a garbage heap. And I mean, it was just glorious to see what God was doing in this place. And then he shows me a picture like no other picture that I'd seen in his book. It's a picture of a little Indian girl. In fact, if you would pull her up, her, the slide of Mina, there she is. He showed me this picture. And he said, David, this is Mina. And he said, we met Mina when on outreach in the Bombay slums. And we found out that shortly after Mina was born that her father abandoned the family. He was, left her and her mother to fend for themselves. It's very common in the slums. Oftentimes a man will get sick with tuberculosis or something else and he'll just go off and die quietly or commit suicide. His mo- her mother, Mina's mother, raised her for the first four or five years of her life just before this picture was taken. But then one night her mother also abandoned her because she was too much for her... For- to take care of. And so she slipped away in the middle of the night. Mina woke up the next day. She had no mother. She had no father. She went and begged from the people in the Bombay slums who lived in the little cardboard boxes around her cardboard box, but they couldn't give her any food because they can't afford to feed their own children. So they would turn her away. And so she would go through the garbage and the, and the, the dirt of the Bombay slums and he said she would just eat whatever she would find. At night she would go up next to this abandoned warehouse and she would find an animal there and curl up next to the animal for warmth. When it got too cold to sleep, she would wake up and she would go and forage through the garbage again. He said about two weeks after this picture was taken, Mina slipped into a coma and died. She never woke up. She ate dirt in the Bombay slums apparently that poisoned her and it, and it killed her. And I remember sitting there, you know, with this photo right in front of me of the scrapbook on my lap and, and just thinking, God, this is just not fair. Like, you watched this happen and you didn't do anything. I mean, how could you not do anything? I just, I was, I don't know if you've ever had one of those times just arguing with God, what's wrong with you? This morning in the scriptures that we looked at, and we didn't go there tonight, but if you want to, you can. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. If you read those, that's where the Lord took me. If you read those, you find out that Jesus is not in heaven watching something like this happen, a horrifying thing like Mina dying. He doesn't watch it happen and say, oh, well, I had 100 sheep, now I have 99. That's still pretty good. That's 99%. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 9 that He is moved with compassion which you can't even describe in the English languages, it, it 
just talks about a heart that is gripped and it is ripped and it is torn up over people like Mina who are lost and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. God gets a negative bum rap often from people like us who have no brain compared to God who accuse Him of not being fair. That's ridiculous. God loves these people so much. He is moved with compassion. He's ripped on the inside. I don't rip on the inside. You don't rip on the inside. But Jesus does. We started these schools, 370 of them. We took in 19,000 children. We started to get reports back from the mission field almost immediately. Just awesome things that God was doing. In one area of northeast India, for example, there were 50 villages. We had sent missionaries there time and time and time again. Every time we sent missionaries into this place, they were beaten, they were stoned, they were thrown out of the village. We couldn't get a foothold for the gospel. We couldn't plant a church there. We went back to these 50 villages and we said, listen, instead of planting a church, we want to put a school there and school your children. Would we be able to do that? And they said, you'd do that? We said, yeah, but we're going to teach them the Bible and we're going to teach them about Jesus Christ. Is that okay? Yeah, just teach them. Teach them whatever you want. Teach them about that man, whoever you mentioned. Teach them. Go ahead. So we did. We went back 10 months later in this 50-village region. We found 37 brand-new churches that had sprung up in 10 months. One was over 250 first-generation Christians in this one place. Praise God. God began to reveal to us that this was a way that we were able to take the gospel into places where previously we couldn't take the gospel. And the stories began to pour back in from the mission field, as I said. One little girl came to one of our Bridge of Hope schools All the students had gone for the day. The principal was in the back of the the classroom grading papers. And as he's back there in the back, this girl comes in. She looks at the principal. She bursts into tears, and she screams, My brother also died. And this pastor said, Whoa, what happened? What happened? Calm down. Tell me what happened. She said, Sir, my family is very poor. We live at the railroad tracks. That's where a lot of the slums are. We live at the railroad tracks. And she said, my father and my mother did their best. They worked so hard to to feed us, to take care of us. But eventually they got sick and they died. My grandmother came from a distant village to take care of my brother and I. But my grandmother got old and frail and she also died. And then yesterday, my brother also died. I have no one. She said, I used to play with a little boy who is from the railroad tracks where I'm from, who goes to the school Is there anyone here who can help me? Can you please take me in? Can you help me? You know the answer. Of course we can. Today, that little girl knows Jesus Christ. She has a family who loves her, who's taken her in. She has a hope and a future, praise God. And she represents maybe 100,000 children, you know, just like her in the slums and the streets all over India, waiting for somebody to take them in, to help them. We met this little boy named Naboon. We have a picture of Naboon. We'll put him up. This is Naboon. He got born again in one of our Bridge of Hope schools. His parents saw a dramatic change in his life. One day, his father comes to school to walk his son home. While he's walking his son home, he tells him, he says, Son, he said, "Um, I have some very bad news. You know your mother's been sick for a long time. He said, Well, today the doctor, the medical doctor left. He said, And he said that probably she'll die any minute. Maybe before the night. We don't know but she might be gone before you get home. I just had to prepare you. I had to come and and let you know. They'd gone to the witch doctor. They'd gone to the village priest. They'd gone to the medical doctor. No one could help this lady. 
Now Boone looks up at his father, a big smile on his face. He said, Daddy, Jesus could heal Mommy. That's all he says. The man can't sleep the whole night. He wakes up the next morning. He walks Naboon back to school. He grabs a pastor out of the back of the church. He said, I need Dr. Jesus to come and examine my wife right away. He thought Jesus was a medical doctor. He said, well, he's not a medical doctor, but I'll tell you who he is. So as they're walking along, he explains the gospel to this man. He gets to his hut. He prays for this woman. Nothing happens. He goes back to the the school. The next day, Naboon comes bouncing into class, takes his seat. The pastor says, Naboon, how is your mother? He said, oh, pastor, praise the Lord. I think Jesus must have healed her last night because she was up this morning, off her cot for the first time in three and a half months. She made us all breakfast. She seems fine. You're going to meet her later today. She's coming to the school. Later that day, dad, mom, the rest of the family comes, give their heart to the Lord Jesus Christ who had healed her completely of whatever she had. And they were the first family in that village to give their hearts to the Lord. Now there's a thriving church there as a result of this one little Bridge of Hope school. And the testimonies go on and on and on. I don't have time, but if I had maybe two hours or three hours tonight, there are stories to to fill that time, things that God's doing through these young people. Just a couple thoughts in uh, wrapping up tonight. You know what I notice? I do the same thing. But I notice that people don't watch where they're going anymore. Do you notice that? I was walking in the airport the other day, and a lady was doing what a lot of times I'm doing. She's walking along, texting and not watching where she's going. She's got her bag. You know, she's toting. And I see her coming because that time I happened to be watching where I was going. So I decided, okay, she's going that way, so I'm just going to kind of go this way. And she stops, and then I almost ran into her, so I start this way. And she starts, and I, I just I got so frustrated you know, I didn't say anything because I'm much too godly for that. But, I mean, man, what I wanted to say is, watch where you're going. Look at me. You know, <laughs> put that thing away. I mean, man, it's getting hard to text and drive. And I just, I don't know. It's just, huh. But really, we're, we're a people, we're a people who's quite distracting. And, and I'm not saying it's all bad. I'm just saying, you know, with the increase in technology, everything that we have, everything's in our face. Nothing is, communication is not passive anymore. It's aggressive. It's active. It goes and it grabs you. It buzzes your belt or it rings your phone or it, you know, Twitters or tweet. I don't even know that world. Like, I won't even go there because I can't handle it. I, my Facebook account, they just canceled the other day, cause I guess because I don't use it. My son said, you're not on Facebook anymore. Like, it's a crime. I said, I... I never, haven't been on Facebook for a couple of years. Well, that's why they canceled your account. Oh, okay. All right. I tried it. I didn't care much for it. That's the way it goes, you know. But here's the deal. The, the point of all this, please, let's remember whose we are. You know, may God take eternity and just stamp it on our eyes because, honestly, we need a view, a vision of walking toward that kingdom and not worrying so much about this one. We should go vertical more than we go horizontal. And that's becoming more and more difficult each and every day. We have to say no to the things that want to distract us and want to just come and, and like I said, vibrate our belt or ring our phone or, you know, however you get your communication. Instead of that, we need, in a sense, to turn away and say, Lord, I just want to know you. I want to be yours. And honestly, brothers and sisters, it really doesn't matter, like, who's in the White House or who's in Sacramento or if you like who's there, if you don't like who's there, or whatever else, they are not our hope. Like oftentimes people think that Jesus is, 
you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Republican. He's not. He's not. I was at a, a college recently in Virginia, and they, they're, they train people to be politicians, actually. They're Christians. It's a Christian school, but they're training. It's a college training people to be Christian politicians. And they sat down with me at lunchtime, and, and probably three or four dozen students would sit there and tell me, we need to make this world democratic. I'm just so happy with what's happening in Africa. I said, really? Rebellion? Uprisings? You think God's glorified in that? I mean, I don't know, to be honest, but I was just picking a fight with them. And I said, you know, democracy is not even in the Bible. The, the biblical form of government is not democracy. The biblical form of government is theocracy. It's God's in charge. That's what we'll have one day when the government is on Jesus' shoulders. We're getting so distracted by so many things that are not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And my encouragement to you, where is Regen going? I hope that you're going to preach the gospel in all the world because that was the last command that we have. And it's Jerusalem, so it's right out here on, on these streets. And it's Judea. I don't know where that is. Maybe that's the Bay Area. Maybe that's California. And it's Samaria, someplace you don't like. I don't know where that is. Um, maybe Arizona or Nevada. I don't know. Maybe that's Samaria. And the uttermost parts of the world. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And I just want to encourage you. I want to challenge you just with everything that's in me. Please, don't fall for the dry ice and mirrors of this world and all the promises that we're given. We're not living for here. Recently, I took my 20-year-old son. He, was, he wasn't 20 then. He was 18. And he was going to go start college. And I said, Josh, I'd love just to have one more time, just you and me. What do you say we, we get some time together? And he goes, Dad, I'd love that. I said, great. What do we go, why don't we go camping? And he goes, oh, camping, really? I said, yeah, Josh, you and I, we'll just we'll go up into the mountains in California. We're going up into the Redwoods. I happen to be out here for a meeting. I said, we'll just go up and we'll go camping. Well, Dad, if, you know, if that's what you want to do, okay, we'll do that. My kids don't like to camp with me because no matter how perfect the day is, by the time we set up our tent, there's you know, 70 mile an hour straight line winds or a tornado or a flash flood or a hurricane just in our campsite. It's been unbelievable the things that have happened when we've been camping. And, and we don't even camp that much, but it, it's just me they're convinced. So we went camping up in the Redwoods. I unfortunately forgot all our food. Um, okay, that wasn't the best thing I could have done. It didn't, it didn't uh, enamor him at all the camping. But, but here's the deal. Here's what I learned besides bring the food for your son. Here's what I learned. We were just there a few days. Like, you know, I didn't bring my... my queen-size bed that I sleep on with my wife at home. I didn't bring the refrigerator. I didn't bring the computer. I didn't bring the, the flat-screen TV thing, whatever that thing is. I didn't bring, you know, all my clothes. I just, we just brought enough for a few days. And why? Because Peter said that we're sojourners and we're pilgrims here. We're just passing through. I didn't intend to live in the campsite. I was just going to stay there just for a few nights. And in a sense, that's the way that we, we treat this world. We're not here to put our tent pegs down and to see that we can live the American dream. We're here to impact a world that's lost and dying, brothers and sisters. And just because we don't see them every day, maybe we do, but just because we don't see them every day doesn't mean that they're not there and that they don't exist. Half the world is waiting. Half the world is waiting. Okay, just to wrap it up very practically, just to close. All right. It's my second closing. It's my last one. Paul used to have four closings. I only have two.
I would ask you for two things. Number one is prayer. Please pray for us. We have now 57,000 children in this Bridge of Hope program. We have about 37,000 of those who we have sponsors for, people who are, as you saw, it takes 28 bucks a month and your prayers. We have 37,000 people who are helping to sponsor these children. There's 20,000 we're supporting by faith. We just believe that this is something God wants us to do, and so as long as we have the resources, we're going to help them. That's what we're going to do. And it's up to the Lord. It's His problem. Financial problem is His problem. It's not our problem. He put it on our heart to do this. I would just ask you if you would please pray. Please pray that all of these children come to know Christ, every single one of them. And would you please pray also that when they're done with their schooling, whenever that is, 16, 17, 18 years old, that they would then maybe go to one of our 61 Bible colleges where we train missionaries. We're training about 10,000 students in these 61 Bible colleges to learn to preach the gospel and literally go to a village that's never had a chance to hear Jesus, dig their grave on the outskirts of the village and commit to preach the gospel and plant a church or give their life trying. That's the commitment they make. Would you please pray with us that these children from these Bridge of Hope schools would go into the Bible colleges and give their lives to go and preach the gospel to people who have never had a chance even to hear his name. And second request I have of you is this. If the Lord is stirring your heart, if you would like to take part, I brought with me some Bridge of Hope children today. I didn't actually bring the children, but I brought photos and testimonies of Bridge of Hope children who need sponsors. Uh, a Bridge of Hope child has one sponsor standing behind them. So if you sponsor a Bridge of Hope child, that's your child. Nobody else is helping to sponsor that child. That child is your responsibility financially, prayerfully. Um, if you would like to do that, it takes, as you heard, about $28 a month in your prayers. And there's a card given to you. This is a vehicle to be able to do that. You might have gotten one when you walked in. If you did, would you just take a moment and look at that with me? In purple letters there near the top, it says, Yes, I want to help a child of Asia. Starting now, I will prayerfully help sponsor blank child or children at $28 a month, totaling blank dollars every month. If you would like to help a child or more than one child, simply fill out this card with your name and address. Turn it in to me. I have a table out in the uh, lobby area. And today, I will give you your Bridge of Hope child. You'll get it, her kind of her photo or testimony, where she's living, what her family's like, so that you can pray for her work or his work. We have boys and girls, obviously. Um, Every penny that you give goes into the Bridge of Hope program, goes to help your child. We don't take anything out to run our office, to print anything, to pay my salary, to do any of that. I had to raise my own support, like any other missionary. Um, I'm supported so that I don't cost Gospel for Asia anything, and the other people I serve with uh, do the same thing. So every penny that you give to help a Bridge of Hope child goes to the field to help your child. They will write to you, and you're able to write back and forth with them. You can communicate with them. No problem. Somebody asked me this morning, they said, I might be traveling to India for business. Would I be able to meet my Bridge of Hope child? And I said, yes, sponsors have been able to do that. So if you have a job like that that might take you to India, then please talk to me at the back, and we'll try to get you into a place or your child from a place where you're likely to be able to meet them one day. That would be a great blessing. You could come back to the church and say, it's really real. It's what they told us it was. I kicked the tires. I saw it. I touched it. I tasted it. It's real. It's there. So that would be a great blessing for us as well. Um, If you would like to help, please help. You don't need a check today. I just need your card today. Having said that, let me just say this also. I am not somebody who appreciates very much when people try to manipulate me for anything, but especially for money. I hate it. 
I don't have a lot of money, and I'm, I'm really glad for that. I can't give a lot of money because I don't have a lot. I mean, I, I like to give to the Lord's work, but when people come up to me and they panhandle, I can honestly say, I'm broke. <laughs> i got nothing to give you. Um, I don't like it, especially when people are on the television channel, and we have about three channels in the Dallas area where they get these guys on the TV, and at the end of the show, the camera comes in real close, and the guy gives you his saddest puppy dog face, and he says, friend, we're in crisis this month, and I need that special gift of a champion just to keep us on the air. And I look at the TV, and I just go, you know, just go off the air. I mean, the sooner the better. Honestly, I'm not against what they're doing necessarily in terms of preaching the gospel. I'm not against that, but I am against the way that we misrepresent God. It's as if God is a shaky old God in heaven and he's broke. And if only regeneration would help him out of this financial jam that he's in, he could go and reach the world, but you won't help. That's ridiculous. That's not how it is. God is Jehovah Jireh. He's, he's our provider. He's got it all. He's not broke. He's doing fine. Gospel phrase is doing fine. Please don't do this out of some guilt trip or manipulation. If you've heard that from me tonight, please forgive me. That's never my intent. If you want to take part, if you want to help a child, man, do it as unto the Lord with all your heart. If he didn't call you to do that, then don't do it unto the Lord with all your heart. I, that's my request to you. I'm sure that God in his sovereignty put us here for such a time as this. And we very well may be the team that's on the field at the end of the game. And that's exciting. And when I see the Lord, and I'm closer than most of you probably, when I see the Lord, I just can't wait to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. That's what I'm looking for. Can I pray with you? Father, thank you for your goodness and your love to us tonight. Thank you, Father, for this fellowship. And Lord, I just want to ask you that you would bless them, but you would bless them to be a blessing to the nations and that, Lord, they would go forward reaching this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, that's our purpose. That's why we're here. You love us so much, I believe, Lord. Otherwise, you would have just saved us and pulled us out. You saved us and left us here so that we can be your ambassadors to a world that's lost and dying and waiting. God, please help us be that. Give us boldness. Please help us break out of our our shell, our self-centeredness, Lord. Please forgive us for not caring sometimes. And please help us, God, just to, Lord, be radical maniacs, soldiers of love, soldiers of the cross for Jesus Christ. We love you, and Lord, we need you. We need your power. We can't do this on our own. We thank you for your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.